Good morning, everyone. Man, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you came out in the snow today. Thank you so much for being here. For those of you watching online who you could not make it, I know our online audience has to be way bigger than normal. Thanks for tuning in with us from wherever you are today. And for those of you who were in a video teaching service last week, thanks for being on mission with us. We're in a season right now where we're kind of two different churches, five different services in a couple different places. So every now and then we have a video teaching instead of live teaching. And every Sunday you sit in that, you're on mission opening seats for someone who doesn't know Jesus yet or is not a part of our church yet. Next weekend is going to be a really big deal because we're all going to be together. Uh, Our entire church, both campuses, five services is going to become 10, and we're going to be in this room for 10 Christmas services. We start Saturday at 4. We go all the way through Christmas Eve. Our last service is 6 p.m., and our theme this Christmas season is Don't Come Alone. There's no better time than Christmas to invite someone to come to church with you. I told you last week, a recent survey done said that more than eight out of 10 people who were not Christians and did not go to church would say yes to an invitation to church at Christmas if a friend personally invited them and sat with them, which means if you have 10 friends who don't know Jesus and you invited all of them, eight of them would say yes this Christmas season. So don't come alone. Next Sunday is also all weekend long going to be our celebration services as we celebrate all that God has done in this season of our Difference Makers campaign. Um, Today is Commitment Sunday and it's snowing. Like, thank you, Jesus, for the snow. I woke up this morning. I thought, I, I understand now how Elijah felt when he was having a battle on top of Mount Carmel to see who could get their like, offering to light up first. And God said, hey, I have an idea. Before we light it on fire, let's get it really, really wet. And Elijah had to think, really, God? Like, this, this is what you want to do? Um, but it is what it is. And I thank you for being here. And for those of you tuning in online, thanks for watching from wherever you are. You say, what are we committing to if you're brand new? We, we believe in this season of our church that our next step is this building that we've designed and we've put together, if we could take the lid off of it for three very specific purposes at this time in our church and in our spiritual journey, a 1,200-seat auditorium where we believe all of our church could worship on the same day under the same roof instead of being divided up, a large community atrium space where our church can be a family together before church, during church, after church, during the week so people don't have to race out early and give up their parking spot, and a massively upgraded children's ministry space, eventually an expanded children's ministry space so that we can have great, great discipleship for our infant all the way through our fifth grade kids. Today, we're committing what we can commit our best to that project, and we're going to say, all right, God, you're going to have to do the rest. But since it's Commitment Sunday, I really felt led today to speak on not a building, but the church. I really felt like God said, Christian, remind the people why, why not Journey Church, not a building, but why the church, why my church, why Jesus Church is so important in the world. So I want to talk to you today about the church. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew chapter 16. Grab your bulletin, take the notes out of the inside so you can follow along. Uh, If you're watching online today, maybe for the first time because of the snow, I believe you can, on the page you're watching on, get the sermon notes to pop up for you so you can watch that uh, and take notes as you follow along. If you're brand new to church and you say, I don't have a Bible, um, I don't really know how to take notes, if you have a smartphone, you can download our Journey Church International app. Everything on the screen will be in your handheld device. You can follow along that way. Email yourself the notes when you're done. That might be helpful to you. We are in the final week, you heard Mike say, of a series that we're calling Difference Makers Chasing the Vision. You say, Christian, what vision are we chasing? We're not chasing a vision for a building. 
We believe if we chase the vision that God has called us to, it may, may not, but it may result in a building in this season of our church. But we're chasing the vision that God has called Christians to, not the vision that God has called journey to. We believe if you're a follower of Jesus that God has called you to four things. Number one, to know him deeply. Number two, to be transformed by him so that you look more like Jesus at the end of your journey than you did at the beginning. To find out your purpose, who God created you to be, what God designed you to do, and then to go do it and make a difference in the world. We believe if every Christian will chase that vision, to know God deeply, to be transformed radically, to figure out your purpose and then to do it, that God's church will accomplish everything that God is calling his church to accomplish for journey. That means we, we may get to a building if we all move in the same direction. But what's more important than a building is the vision of being a people moving together who know God, who want to make God known. It's being a people who have been so deeply transformed that when they look around, they want to help other people experience that same transformation. It's being a people who not only have figured out our purpose, but are living on mission together because we believe together we can accomplish more than we can apart. That really is the purpose of this series. And today, as we end this series, I've got two goals for you. Here are the goals of this morning. One, to learn the power of the church. We're going to listen to Jesus talk about his church. He's going to talk about it probably better than you talk about it, better than American Christianity sometimes talks about the church. We're going to hear Jesus talk about his church and the power of the church, and then we're going to prepare for the battle of the church because Jesus says, here's what you need to know about the church, and here's what you need to understand as you go about becoming my church. We're going to learn the power of the church. We're going to try to learn how to prepare for the battle of the church. We're going to open God's word to find that. But before we open God's word, we always try to open our hearts. So if you're here today, would you just bow your heads with me? If you're watching online, would you bow your heads? And would you take a deep breath? Man, there is a long stretch of 2019 behind us that maybe has worn you out. And there is a busy stretch of 10 days in front of us that probably will wear you out. But today, in these moments, we can calm our heart. We can calm our mind and we can ask God to speak to us. And God, that's our prayer today, that in these moments you would speak to our hearts. Jesus, help us today to see your proclamation about the impact of your church and to hear your promise about the battles that it will face. On this Commitment Sunday, God, let us reach our goal as the latest community of Christians living on mission for you. We love you. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Matthew 16, I'm going to start in verse 13, go through verse 18. You might keep your Bible open. We'll come back and refer to Scripture uh, the entire service. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some said John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. The son of the living God, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, this statement that I am the Savior of the world, that is going to be the foundation that I'm going to build my church on, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Two goals today. One, to learn the power of the church. Jesus said it's going to be a powerful thing. Two, to prepare for the battles of the church. Jesus said they're coming. But we're going to start today with the church. We're going to start today with the church. Say the words, the church. We're going to start today with the church because the church is powerful. On July 5th of 2017, I went to bed as excited as I had been for a long time. I was in Galilee in Israel. 
And the next morning, we were going to wake up and go to Caesarea Philippi. It would be the first time I was in Caesarea Philippi and got to teach Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus stood and said, I'm going to build the church. I could not wait to get there. What I did not know when I went to bed is that I had food poisoning, and I would throw up five times before I got up the next morning for the day. And then as I got on the bus, I would throw up three more times um, on the bus ride to Caesarea Philippi. Um, and then I would change my shirt, and I'd grab my Bible, and I'd teach for 30 minutes before I puked for the next four or five days, on and on um, and on. But it was an incredible experience being at Caesarea Philippi. Go to the next uh, page, if you would. I got to stand where scholars believe Jesus stood in front of what used to be the facade of a temple to the god Pan with a huge cave behind it, where Jesus, where Jesus said something really powerful that was a statement that could be fact-checked. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church. You hear him salt in the road out there? It's like, what is that? That's, that's just salt in the road. Yeah. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I'm going to build my church. And I believe for Jesus, this was the second greatest prove-it statement that he made in his ministry. The first greatest prove-it statement was this. I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. you got to prove that. Like, you got to prove that. I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. I believe the second greatest prove-it statement was this. I'm going to build a church, and it's going to be around forever. Nothing in the world can destroy it. This statement would be tested about a year after Jesus was crucified. Because after Jesus was crucified and he did a little ministry, God took him back up to heaven and his disciples began to tell people Jesus is the Messiah. He was crucified, he was buried, but he rose again and everyone needs to believe in him. And the Jewish rulers of the day said, you can't say that, you can't say that. So they arrested the disciples and we find a bit of tension in Acts chapter 5 because we're going to find out whether or not Jesus is a liar or he can be trusted because he said, I'm going to build my church. But the Jewish Sanhedrin at the time, kind of the Jewish ruling Congress said, we're going to crush the church. Peter and John had been arrested. They're standing before this ruling body who has already arrested and beat them once and it didn't stop them. So now they're trying to figure out, should we kill them? Do we put them in prison forever? What are we going to do to stop the movement of this people? And a wise... Pharisee stood up. His name's Gamaliel. You can read a little bit about him in the Bible. You can read a lot in Jewish history about him. He stood up and in Acts chapter 5, he said what I read that day in Caesarea Philippi. He said, here's what you need to know about the church. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all of the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, kind of the Jewish Congress, and he ordered that the men, Peter and John, be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, and here's what he said. Men of Israel, Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and nothing's going to come against it. Jesus' greatest skeptic said, if he's the real deal, you can't come against it. Rick Warren said last year at an event that he was preaching at that he believes, he's a pastor in Southern California, that the church today is the greatest force for good in the world. That the church of Jesus Christ is the greatest force for good in the world and the thing in life that is closest to the heart of God. Think about this. 
God created the entire universe. You heard Leslie sang that beautiful song about creation. God created the entire universe so that within it, he could create a galaxy that we know as the Milky Way galaxy. And he created the entire Milky Way galaxy so that he could create one rock inside of it, a planet that we call Earth. And he, and he created the Earth so that it could hold people, so that it could support human life. One degree closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. One degree further from the sun, we'd freeze. He created this perfect rock where human life could be created. And he created humanity because he wanted a family. And that family today is called the church. If there wasn't a church, God wouldn't have had to create the universe. God created the entire universe so that the church would have a place to exist and the church is the only thing that's gonna outlast the universe that we're living in right now. Today, you could say by all accounts, nothing is bigger on planet earth than the church of Jesus Christ. Nothing is bigger on planet earth than the church, the followers, the families of Jesus Christ. There are 14 million Jews alive on planet earth who practice or who are ethnically, practice Judaism or are ethnically Jewish. There are 600 million Buddhists in the world, most of those in Asia. There are 800 million Hindus alive in the world, many of them living in India. There are 1.3 billion Muslims alive on planet earth today. And there are 2.4 billion people who refer to themselves as Christians on planet earth today. Almost one out of every three people on the planet is a part of God's church. We don't all worship the same. We don't all dress the same. Our church services look different. But there are 2.4 billion people who believe Jesus was born at Christmas. He resurrected at Easter. That the Bible is the word of God and Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. One out of every three people on planet earth believes that. The church, the church is bigger than America and Europe put together. The church, the church is bigger than China. The church God's church is bigger than India. The church, God's church is almost bigger than China and India put together. The church is the biggest thing on planet earth. More people will sit in church on one Sunday of the year. Think about this. More people will sit in church on one Sunday of the year than will gather to watch professional sports teams in America between January 1 and December 31 of every professional sport in every stadium. More people will be in church today than will watch every NFL, Major League, NBA, hockey, Major League Soccer game for the entire season combined. By far, more people will go to church today than will do that. On a snowy Sunday in Kansas City, only 20% of our city goes to church. There will be five times as many people in church today as there will be at Arrowhead Stadium. The church is the biggest thing alive. The church speaks more languages than the United Nations because the church is in more nations than the United Nations. After Hurricane Katrina, the Wall Street, article, uh, the Wall Street Journal wrote an article that said there are some disasters that are too big for government to get their hands around. The only thing that appears to show up soon enough, stay long enough, and be free enough is the church. The church is the only thing in our country big enough to handle some disasters. 
A spokesman for the Red Cross said they can do what they do only because nearly 100% of their volunteers come from the church. You know, we live in a world, especially in American Christianity, that likes to pick at the church and talk about how weak it is. If you listen to the American media, you would think the church is just a kitten, but the church is a lion. And the lion of the tribe of Judah is still leading his church forward. Jesus said he'd build a church. His greatest skeptic said if he was really who he said he was, he would. And that if he did, we should all probably become a part of that family. You and I are here because of Jesus' promise for his church. The church is powerful. It's not perfect, but it's powerful. Dr. Tim Keller has one of my favorite statements on the church. He said, we must joyfully seek out the church and praise God for what it could be while confessing, as long as we're a part of it, that it will be a flawed community far from reflecting God's character. The church is not perfect because it has broken people in it, but it is powerful. And what it could be with Jesus and what it will be one day with Jesus is worth it. And the mission of Jesus' church is really clear. What happens when Jesus and his family show up in a community? In Matthew chapter 9, again in Matthew chapter 4, almost verbatim, we hear from Matthew that this is what the traveling ministry of Jesus looked like. When Jesus and his family, when Jesus and his people showed up in a community, here's what they would do. It says, Jesus went through all of the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What, what do Jesus and his family look like? What do Jesus and his family do when they're on mission? Four things according to Matthew chapter 9. When Jesus and his family show up in a town, they teach people. The church should teach Christians how to walk with God. When Jesus showed up, he would teach people how to walk with God, but he would also proclaim, he would preach the gospel to those who are far from God. Jesus would move into a town and he would take people walking with God and say, help, let me help you do this better. And at the same time, he would find those who didn't even know God and he would say, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. More than that, number three, Jesus and his family, his church would bring healing to those in a community who were hurting. They would go to towns preaching. They would go to towns teaching. They would go to towns healing diseases and sicknesses. And they would go to town for the purpose, number four, of raising up and sending out workers to do the work of the ministry. You say, man, I would have loved to follow Jesus around. What would life have looked like following Jesus around? What would life have looked like if Jesus was my pastor? You would be a part of a family that taught people how to walk with God, that preached the good news to people who didn't know God, that attracted and sought out people who were hurting so you could bring healing to them, and that raised people up and sent them out to do the work. This is what God's church is. God's church is the biggest thing, the greatest thing in the world. But it's also something that deeply impacts our lives when we are engaged deeply in God's church. I read an article a few weeks ago on a city in California called Loma Linda, California. Some of you have been to Loma Linda. It's a, it's a weird name for a town. But it is one of five blue zones in the world. You say, what is a blue zone? It is one of the five places on planet Earth where people are healthiest and live the longest. In Loma Linda, California, the average person lives 10 years longer than every other American. So they went to study them and say, what is it that makes you so uniquely, emotionally, physically, relationally healthy? And they found out that this is one of the largest groups, communities of a Protestant Christian denomination called Seventh-day Adventist in the world. 
And they have a special diet which physically makes them happy. But as they study them, there's lots of healthy people in the world. As they study them, they said it's their community that gives them life. And as they did the study, they said it was their lifestyle, not their diet, but their lifestyle that was committed to serving one another, volunteering for each other, doing mission work outside of their community, choosing to live in spiritual community. And here was the biggest thing that that was kind of an aha moment. They take one day every week, and they don't do anything but spend time with their family and their spiritual community. They won't work or do anything but just spend time with family and spiritual community. And they said those are the things that give them this uncommon health and wellness. They interviewed the scores of people over the age of 100, over the age of 100 and said, tell us the secret to your health. And they all said it is our involvement in and engagement in our spiritual community. As a matter of fact, we really didn't even begin to get physically, emotionally, relationally healthy until we engaged in the church, and then it changed everything. Jesus promised that he would build his church, and he's delivered Jesus has promised that he would build his church and he has delivered, but he also promised it wouldn't come without a fight. Jesus promised that he would build his church and he delivered, but he also promised it wouldn't come without a fight. So number one, we look at the church. Number two, let's look at the battle. Let's look at the battle. This is important for our church, I believe, in this season. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said this, I'm going to build my church And the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overcome it. I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let me give you some context to this statement. I'm going to show you that picture again, that second picture of me teaching in Caesarea Philippi. In front of this massive cave, in front of this cave used to be the facade of the Temple of Pan. This is where people in northern Israel would want to go if you worship the god Pan to figure out whether or not you were connected to God. And here's how you would do that. You would take a sacrifice to the temple of Pan. Deep within this cave, still there today, is a stream. The priest would take your sacrifice. It would put it in the stream. The stream came out of the back of the temple, ran down through the middle of town. It's still there today. You can go and dip your feet in it if you want. You would put your sacrifice in the stream, and if it came out the other side, it was acceptable to God. You knew you were connected to God. You knew you were going to be okay. But if it got hung up in the twist and turns of the cave which people in those days called the gates of hell. If it got stuck and didn't come out the other side, that means you were not connected to God. So people would go to this spot to give a sacrifice to to tell them, am I connected to God or am I not connected to God? If my sacrifice gets through, I am. If the gates of hell stop it, I'm not. And Jesus said, listen, I'm gonna tell you how to connect to God. You're gonna connect to God by choosing to believe that I am the savior. And the gates of hell are not gonna stop that truth, are not going to stop that gospel. It's interesting because he asked his disciples, what are people saying about me? He said, oh, people say, they say you're a great spiritual teacher. Um, They say you're a great miracle worker. They say you're a kind of a great spiritual leader. You're kind of a prophet. And he asked his disciples, what what do you say? And Peter, in this place where people came to find out whether or not they were connected to God, Peter said, you are, you are the person who connects people to God. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world who connects people to God. And Jesus said, you got it. You got it right for once, Peter. You usually got it wrong. You got it right. And that fact that I am the one who connects people to God, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build a group of people who believe that. And the gates of hell, they're going to stop that sacrifice from getting through. You know, it's interesting. We left Caesarea Philippi that day, and instead of turning right to go to Galilee, we turned left, and we drove through the Golan Heights 
which border the country of Syria. We stopped at kind of the northeasternmost point um, where the countries of Israel and Syria come together. Uh, we were on the edge of Israel. There was a United Nations camp in the valley in between us. It was probably a half mile wide and a half mile on the other side of where we were was Syria. And about two miles into Syria, there was a village who was actively, actively involved in a, in a fight, a village of rebels that were fighting President Assad from Syria at the time. And as we stood on the hills of the Golan Heights, we watched, we watched and heard this fight two miles away. You could hear the bombs going off, boom, 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 as they shot mortars at the town. You could see the smoke rising up. You could see the fire kind of flash. And we stood for five or six minutes and just watched the battle. It was interesting going back to the hotel that night and watching on global news what we had just seen with our eyes. And I want to be honest with you, it's different in person. It's different in person. When you're that close to the battle, it's different in person. And here's what you need to understand. If you are leaning into this process with us, you are sprinting to the front of the battle line of spiritual battle in our community. And you're saying, God, I'm ready. And you're going to be closer than you've ever been to the spiritual battle line. And you're going to hear the bombs. You're going to feel in your chest the, the spiritual warfare that's raging. You're going to hear the bullets flying around you. You're going to see the smoke rising. And you're going to have to rise to a new level of Christian maturity, of pressing in spiritually. Because if you lean into this, you are racing to the battle line with us. I told our church, I'm not inviting you into a building plan. I'm inviting you into a spiritual battle. But we are equipped to be protected and we are equipped to win. I don't know if you notice this. Jesus promised that hell would not overcome his church, but he didn't promise hell wouldn't fight against it. As a matter of fact, it's assumed in Jesus' statement they would fight against it. Jesus, he promised, listen, hell's not going to overcome you. But just in the way he said it, we should know, but hell is going to fight against you. They're going to fight against you, but they're not going to win. I believe many of you will. Some of you already have begun to face spiritual battles that you've never felt, heard, seen, experienced in your life. And you've been unsure of what's happening in your marriage and with your kids and at your job. And today, God's going to kind of allow the scales to fall off your eyes and you're going to open. You're going to say, oh my gosh, those are just the sounds and the feelings of spiritual warfare in my life because I have moved way closer to the battle line than I've ever been. You have to realize your battles are spiritual. As we read through scripture, one of Satan's tactics is to find where God is moving and to fight there. We often think if we can figure out where revival is, we can remove ourselves from Satan. But Satan seeks out revival. He goes where God is moving. That's his tactic. I'm going to go where God is moving. We read an interesting story in the book of Job about God's armies, his angels presenting themselves to God one day. And we read this interesting verse in Job chapter 1, verse 6, that when I read it a few years ago, I had an interesting thought. It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. I read that, and I stopped, and I thought, what is he, what's he doing there? Like, what's he doing there? What's he doing with the good guys? Like, how, how's he even get there? What's he doing with the good guys? And God said, Christian, read the Bible. Start in Genesis. I created a perfect world with two perfect people who had the most perfect relationship with God that any two human beings had ever had and who was there with them. Satan goes where God is moving the greatest. Christian, read the New Testament. Jesus, as he was baptized, went to spend 40 days in prayer to gear up for his ministry. The Son of God spending time with Father God for 40 days with no one else around, gearing up for spiritual ministry, should have been the high point of his life spiritually. And who was there with him? Satan. 
And the book of Revelation played out in this drama that the apostle John saw and wrote from the island of Patmos. He pictured the savior of the world as a, as a baby who would be born to the woman and Satan as a dragon who tried to stop that birth from happening. He tried to catch the baby at birth so he could kill it when he was a baby, but it was rescued and he couldn't kill the baby, but he chased the baby's movements his entire life. That is the story of the church. Satan can't overcome it, but he's chasing it and he's fighting it every step of the way. Satan could not stop the birth of this movement that we now sit in called Journey Church International, but I promise you he's chasing the movement. And the more engaged you are, the more you're going to hear the bullets flying spiritually. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says it this way. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He gets right in the middle of church business. That's the way he works. You need to understand faith often brings spiritual fights. Battles often precede blessings. And some of you are getting ready to move in the greatest faith you've moved in in a while, and it's causing already spiritual fights in your life. Some of you are seeking blessing in a move of God, and it's bringing some internal and relational battles that you just, you can't figure out where they're coming from, but you need to realize the battle is spiritual. Listen to me, Journey. The battle is spiritual. Some of you are at home today, not because of the snow, but because some battle going on in your life has made it hard to get out of bed. The battle is spiritual. Paul told the church in Ephesus, another great move of God, this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not the people that seem to be driving you crazy. Satan's working through all that. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Faith brings fights. Often battles precede blessings, but the battle is spiritual, and the battle can be won. The good news of Scripture is that the final battle has been won. I mean, we can read the end of the story. The final ha- battle has been won, but our daily spiritual battles are going to have to be fought through prayer. That's the reality. If we're going to accomplish what we're setting out to do, it's not going to take big faith on the front end. It's going to take big faith on the front end supported by big prayer on the back end. It's why we start January 5th, a new series at our church called Dear God. Dear God. We're going to try to teach people how to talk to God because I think if you lean into this within the next 30 days, you're going to have a situation that makes you think, dear God, dear God, what is happening? You cannot live in faith if you won't lean in in prayer. It's almost impossible. And we can't ask you for faith unless we undergird you. We can't ask you, hey, come closer to the battle line without equipping you with things that will protect you. It's why on January 5th, we'll start another season of 21 days of prayer. We'll pray at our church every morning of the week between 6 and 7 a.m. On Saturdays, 9 to 10 a.m. On Sunday, we'll pray during the service. We're going to give the first part of our year to Jesus in prayer because as a church, we're racing toward the battle line and we need Jesus to protect us from the battles that will rage. We have to learn to pray because God's church is worth faith. But faith brings fights and often battles precede our blessings. The past eight years, I believe, reflecting back, God's been building his church through journey, through what's been going on in our community. Four years ago, we broke ground on this building, not because we wanted a building, but because we believed a house for God's family, for our family, was needed. And man, it's been an unbelievable four years of God moving in our community and in our lives Before we move towards our commitment time today and the end of this message, I just want to remind you of what God does when we move forward in faith. I want to show you a little video of what God's been doing the last four years so we can dream 
about what God might do the next 25 if we lean forward in faith. Check out this video. And that's still happening here. I got off the stage at our first service and someone came up to me crying. And they said, there was a picture of me and my husband on the screen praying over our jar. That jar had the initials of my brother-in-law who last year came at Christmas and got saved. See how those two things go together? At Journey, the the last eight years, we've seen more than 3,000 people make and acknowledge spiritual decisions. I didn't know Jesus, but now I do. We've seen 600 of those baptized sharing their faith of, this is why I I want to follow Jesus. We as a church have served more than 10,000 hours of community service in our community, finding people who are hurting and trying to bring healing and help and hope to their life. We've had over 400 people take global mission trips all over the world to go proclaim the news that Jesus is the savior of the world that connects people to God. Next year, we will surpass more than $2 million invested into missions and community out, uh, outreach um, and, the, and the church planning and thousands of new friendships and thousands of spiritual next steps have been taken. Jesus said he would build his church. And that's been happening at Journey. Our church is a church that teaches Christians how to walk with God. Our church is a church that helps people who don't know who Jesus is know they can connect to God through him. Our church is a church who doesn't just seek out but is open to people who are hurting, who need spiritual healing. Our church our church is a church that tries to raise people up and send them out. Our church is not perfect. But God's church is powerful. And he has allowed us to be a part of that movement. Here's what you need to know, Journey. With or without a building, we're going to keep doing all those things. With or without a new, bigger building, we're going to keep doing all those things. We believe we can do more for more people. We can have greater impact with a building. That's, that's our belief. That's what we believe God is calling us to. And now is the time as a church to lean into that. So I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward right now. Normally we take the offering at the end of the sermon. We're going to kind of do it in the middle today. Because we've been telling you for six weeks that probably the most important date of this Difference Maker series is December 15th. It's Commitment Sunday. For those of you who are watching online, you couldn't get here today and you want to give online, I'm going to ask you, don't close this window, but open a new window on your computer and go to the website differencemaker.cc. This pledge card... If you go to differencemaker.cc across the homepage, you're going to see in the middle of the page some words, how, why, what, FAQ, and one that says give. Click on the one in the middle of the page that says give, scroll down, and this pledge card will pop up so you can do all of this at home from where you are. We've been asking people on Commitment Sunday to bring two things. One, their pledge card, what they can commit above and beyond their giving if God is calling you to give. We've said not everyone is supposed to give in this campaign. For some people, it's not the right time in life. No guilt, just pray. No shame, just pray. But for those of you who are being called to give, we've asked you to bring this pledge card today and to fill out two numbers on it, your name, your information, and two numbers, your total two-year pledge. I told you five years ago when we did this, Danielle and I were able to pledge 15,000 to our first building. We were able to give 5,000 of that 15,000 as a first fruit offering, kind of our first gift of that. So you would just fill out, my total pledge is X, I'm going to give this much of it today. Some of you are going to pledge and you're not going to be able to give any first fruits because the information is so new to you. Some of you, your first fruits and your pledge are going to be the exact same. All you know is what you can give right now and you don't want to pledge anything further than that. 
had someone ask me this week, my first fruits I'd rather give in January than December works better on my taxes. I told him, just write that on your card. All that makes sense. Just clearly communicate on your card. But if you've been called to give, now's your time. We're going to ask you in just a minute, we're going to pray. And we're going to ask you to turn in this card along with your first fruit offering. If you're giving a regular offering today, probably there are lots of people who are going to give two checks in the offering today on your building check right in the memo, building or first fruits. We're getting new envelopes as a church so that moving forward as you give, you can just check a box on the outside of the envelope. This is regular offering. This is for the building. But today, write on your check that it's building. And if you're doing this online, you can do it online. It'll get to the same ushers today that these cards are getting to. We told you, in order to get started on this construction, we think our church needs to raise $8 million, eight to $9 million above our regular tithes and offerings to make it happen. But before we started this series, we were at $5.2 million already pledged. So if this race had four laps, we're in the last lap, and we're handing you the baton now. Those of you who have not had your chance, we're handing you the baton. Those of you watching online because you're stuck in the driveway, we're handing the baton to you now. And our prayer is that if everyone will run the race God's called them to run, that we'll get to the finish line. And next week at our Christmas services, we'll celebrate together. We'll tell you what we know. We'll tell you what we don't know. We'll tell you what's come in. And we'll tell you how we're planning to use that. But we're trusting that God can, if he wants to, do above and beyond everything we ask or imagine. Jesus said he would build his church. He said there'd be battles along the way, but those would be overcome if you would lean into him carefully. But he said his church would stand strong. My prayer is that this weekend, Journey Church International, our very small part of God's church in the world, will flex our muscles a little bit and say, God, your church is still standing strong in us. And that together, that together we get there. We pray with me before our ushers pass our offering buckets. God, We've made it to the finish line of this season in our church. Casting vision for the next steps, we believe that you're calling us to. But really, God, if we are successful, today is a starting line, not a finish line. It's the starting line to being your church, just like we've always been, but in a more impactful way, with more room to invite people to connect with God through Jesus, with more room to teach people how to follow and walk with Jesus. God, if... And when we are successful, our greatest pledge to you is not financial, Lord, it's, it's faith. Lord, that in faith, we will be a church that continues to be your family. We'll teach Christians how to become more like Jesus. We will be a church that tells those who don't know you how to find life through Jesus. God, we will be a church that seeks out and is open to those who are hurting so we can provide as much healing as we can. God, we will be a church that raises people up and sends them out to live on mission for you. Jesus, keep building your church through us. Teach us how to fight spiritual battles through prayer. Help us draw closer to you as we draw closer to the front line of spiritual battle in our community. And God, in advance, we thank you for every dollar that will come in today, for every dollar that will be pledged today. It's all, it's all for you. We believe it's all from you, and it's our honor to give it back to you for the sake of your church. Jesus, we love you, and we ask you to help us now in Jesus' name. And everyone said together.